Welcome to the OIS Podcast, where you get candid conversations with the leaders and drivers of ophthalmic innovation. And now, here's our host, Tom Salemi. Hey everyone, this is Tom Salemi. Welcome back to the OIS Podcast. It's great to have you here. This OIS Podcast is sponsored by Bear. As a leader in ophthalmology, Bayer is committed to delivering science for a better life by addressing unmet needs through scientific progress and innovation. Bayer has established strong internal R&D capabilities in ophthalmology with the aim to bring new therapies to patients suffering from vision impairment and sight-threatening diseases. Our guest today is Dr. Praveen Dougal. Dr. Dougal is a managing partner at Retinal Consultants of Arizona. He is a regular contributor to OIS. In fact, he was involved in OIS at ASRS. That's where I had the chance to catch up with him. We sat down and talked about the retinal space, about the many treatments that are, look promising and, and some that, uh, that have him concerned. We covered combination therapy, gene therapy, imaging. So you'll want to uh, listen into this conversation if you want Dr. Dougal's insights on the retina. But if you want even more, I invite you to go to OIS.net to register for OIS at AAO, which is happening on November 9th in New Orleans. In addition to the day-long agenda that we'll have on the center stage, we'll open the day with our breakfast breakouts, which we've done over the last few years. And uh, Dr. Dougal is leading a great panel called Retina Update, Interpreting and Looking, Looking Beyond the Highlights of 2017. And his panelists include Dr. Jay Duca, Dr. David Boyer, and Dr. Jeff Heyer. All are, uh, are experts in this field as well, so it's a, it's a terrific take. And I advise you to register soon if you'd like to get in on it because it is filling up. Please go to OIS.net to sign up. If, uh, if you're unable to get into that one, we have others available. They're also filling up, so don't wait too long. But we have great conversation about MIGS, about private equity investors in ophthalmology. We'll have uh, great conversations with leaders at the FDA and discussions about dry eye and the combination and collaboration of optometry and ophthalmology. I think that's a new topic in there and one that, uh, that is sure going to be interesting. It's one I'm hoping to sit in on myself. So enjoy this podcast, learn a lot, but don't wait too long to hear even more and to learn even more at OIS at AAO. Sign up now, go to OIS.net. Now let's get into this conversation. Hi, this is Tom Salemi. I'm here at OIS at ASRS. I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Praveen Dougal. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Tom. It was a great panel you just got off of, and it's kind of follows along the themes that I, I wanted to address with you today. Where are we with the development of, of treatment for retinal disease? I know it's a really broad question, but do you, it seems as if there's so many ideas coming down the pike. Uh, it's an exciting time to be in this space. Do you see a lot of um, um, almost too much going on? Is there not enough going on? What is, what is the state of, of innovation for retinal treatment? Well, you know, you, you can't ever be too rich or too thin, right? So I think you can never <laughs> ever have too much going on. Sure. I, think, I think it's extraordinarily exciting. I think there's a lot of really, really neat things happening. And I think we're on the precipice of our paradigm changing in terms of how we treat patients. So I'm happy to give you sort of an overview, a top-line overview of these diseases, and it's probably best to break it down into neovascular macular degeneration and uh, diabetic macular edema and diabetic retinopathy. So in neovascular macular, but I guess the commonality there between the two is that uh, we're kind of spoilt before anti-VEGFAs. 
Um, we really thought that the improvement that we got, which is spectacular with anti-VEGF-A's, is something that we would witness with something else over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And we realize now that that's really tough to do. Not impossible, but really tough to so, do. So we got to the moons, but we're not building hotels on the moon. Exactly, yeah. not yet. <laughs> not we yet. will at some point, but not yet. So I think the lesson that we've learned is that, hey, you know, what we've got right now is pretty darn good, and, it's, and the improvement we're going to get is incremental. So the question then becomes, well, where are the opportunities, right? So in neovascular macular generation, I'd, I'd say there are three different silos of opportunities. First is improved efficacy in the short run. Um, we can always use that because, remember, 30% or so of patients do not gain a driving vision. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's improvement of efficacy in the long run, which is that there are very, very few studies that go past four or five years that do not show anything other than a continued decline past baseline, hmm. usually because of atrophy and fibrosis. So therein lies another opportunity. And the third opportunity, equally important, uh, is that of increased durability. We know that we need a sustainable mechanism in terms of uh, treating these, these patients, and we don't have that uh, at this point. So that's another opportunity. So I think of three silos of opportunities, improved efficacy in the short term, improved efficacy in the long term, and increased durability. And that's for macular degeneration. Now, for diabetic macular edema, uh, it's a slightly different story. We know now that as well as anti-VEGF-A's work, there are about 50% of patients who presumably have more of an inflammatory component where it may not work as well. And in those patients, we're able to tell them after three to six injections if they're going to continue to progress uh, properly or not. And in those patients, we need something. Um, and a combination agent for those patients would be fantastic, particularly if it involves increased durability. So that's sort of a top-line view of where we are with neovascular macular degeneration uh, as well as uh, diabetic macular edema. Now, diabetic retinopathy, also a really exciting field. I mean, the population there is enormous. If we're able to even regress diabetic retinopathy or stabilize diabetic retinopathy even a little bit, that's a huge number of patients that we will impact. And there... We do have now FDA approval for one of the anti-VEGFAs, ranivizumab, to be used, and probably very soon also a Flibercet, for patients with proliferative diabetic retinopathy, with or without macular edema, and for non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy in ranivizumab. But again, you have to question the sustainability of being able to give injections every four weeks. So there's enormous opportunity there if we can increase the durability and have a sustainable treatment strategy as well. So how do you manage patient expectations? You, you talk of a patient who responds initially, but, but then the, the treatment doesn't help them after four to six injections. What is that conversation like with those patients, and how do you manage patient expectations overall, long-term, with all of these promising treatments in the clinic, hopefully bringing something, but you're, we're not, definitely not there yet? So it depends on the disease that you're talking about. So let's look at neovascular macular degeneration mm -hmm. first. So... In the beginning, to give patients an injection is not a big deal. Uh, we can, I, I sit there and talk to the patients, and I say, look, this is going to have to be done every four weeks if you want the best outcomes and so forth. Everybody says yes. It's rare that somebody says, oh, my God, that's a lot. Everybody says, wow, if you're going to save my sight, yes, right away. After two, three, four, five injections, they start asking questions. Do I have to really come back next month? Can we make it two months? Can we make it a month and a half? What have you. And then I have a conversation with them again, and I say, look, studies have shown that the best outcome is by surveillance. Not necessarily injections, but by surveillance every four weeks. Huge treatment burden. 
if you're able to do that, studies have shown that that will give you the best outcome. If you're not able to do that, other studies suggest that the outcome may be, we don't know, we don't, we can't say this with as much confidence, but maybe as good. And then there I talk about treat and extend. That's how I treat my patients with neovascular macular degeneration. For patients with diabetic macular edema, after three to six injections, again, there are good studies to show that you can tell whether this is a patient that's going to be anti-VEGF-A responsive or not. Probably after about six injections or so, I have a conversation with them saying, look, uh, either you're going to continue to improve and we need to keep on doing this, or I'm going to say, look, you've plateaued and studies suggest that you may be in the inflammation phase mm-hmm. and we should look at something else. And there I would look at a steroid delivery device. Uh, for patients with diabetic retinopathy, it's a little bit more difficult. We used to treat them with panretinal photocoagulation for proliferative diabetic retinopathy. Um, now, after protocol S and after approval of uh, ranibizumab, I have a discussion with them and I say, this will allow you to save your peripheral vision. However, it is a large treatment burden. Are you willing to do it? And if they do come and they're willing to go through that treatment burden, then I continue. If eventually they say, look, I just can't do this anymore, then we talk about panoramic photocoagulation. Mm-hmm. Interesting. We had, this is our second OIS at ASRS. A year ago, we had the promise of, of combination, late-stage combination therapy trials that were coming to, we are going to see results very soon. We saw those results. They are disappointing. How are you feeling about that space today in August 2017? Very good in the sense that I, the opportunities haven't gone away. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why we do clinical trials, and that's why drug de- development is risky. We forget that um, sometimes. Though. We absolutely, and, and, and we've been spoiled. We yeah. really have. We've been spoiled by the successes of Lucentis and ILA and so forth, one after the other. But this is a risky business, but the rewards are great. So the opportunities haven't changed. So I feel very, very good about it. I feel very good about the fact that um, we are learning a lot from systemic medicines. A lot of things that we saw today, for instance, uh, the company named Aptheia from Australia uh, in a product named OPT302, um, is an entirely different mechanism of action. It's a, it's a, a VEGF-C and D inhibitor, which I think is very promising. Uh, there's an integrant in- inhibitor that Allegro has, entirely different mechanism of action, again, very promising. And there are many, many others that are out there. Um, so I'm, I'm very keen uh, about what the next few years are going to show. And how about in the gene therapy space? I mean, it's nice to, we, we've seen some progress there, but but there, it's, it's any sort of product is, is obviously far away. Is that something that you have in mind that you're tracking closely, or is it something that you're uh, that you're going to let sort of mature in its own... Imaging? Yeah. Well, you know, that's a bit of a dilemma. No, gene therapy, I'm sorry. Oh, gene, I'm sorry, gene, yeah. gene, gene therapy. Yeah. Oh, I think that too is very, very exciting. It, 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 we may be earlier in development with gene therapy. I know there have been some disappointments, um, but I have no doubt that in the next few years we're going to see advances. The challenges really have been what vectors to use and how to deliver the vectors. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, probably more than any other field, it's interesting. I think gene therapy may parallel the successes of vitro-retinal surgery hmm. because we may be in a point where we can deliver the gene therapy precisely where we need it, and that may occur because of advances in visualization vitro-retinal surgery allowing us to register and navigate so we can precisely and reproducibly place the drug oh. where we need it to be placed. Interesting connection. And, and, and that might happen. If you look at Avalanche, for instance, mm-hmm. um, you know, that study uh, didn't hit, hit its primary endpoint, and one of the reasons may have been the lack of reproducibility in being able to deliver the gene product exactly where it should be. If we could overcome that, 
maybe that would be successful. Who knows? But there will be other gene products, I think, uh, and other therapies that may require such precision in terms of placement. So I think for the first time, what we may see is a parallel development of surgical uh, efficacy and, and pharmaceutical efficacy. So that silo that we have of saying, are you drug or are you device, is going to be gone. It's going to be interconnected. Interesting. And you mentioned imaging. Uh, yep. what, what's, in, what's, uh, what's interesting in that space? So imaging is a bit of a dilemma. Um, you know, uh, when you think about it historically, um, we were just extraordinarily uh, lucky. And it was a serendipitous event that um, OCT, structural OCTs, were developed at the same time as anti-VEGFAs. Huh. That is a perfect biomarker for anti-VEGFAs. Um, if you look at it historically, in the beginning, OCTs, structural OCTs, really weren't very popular until Avastin and Lucentis came around. And we realized that was the perfect biomarker, and we could use this to assess the, uh, the effect of our treatment. So as an anti-permeability agent, um, you couldn't find a better biomarker than a structural OCT. But then we also realize that there are disconnects now that we have. For instance, there, if you have an anti-inflammatory agent, um, the structural OCT doesn't necessarily reflect the improvement of visual acuity. You can see that in many studies such as FAME-A and FAME-B where there's a disconnect between the OCT uh, and the visual acuity. You can also see that in the DRCRNet studies. So it makes me worry a little bit about what biomarker we will use when we look at different mechanisms of actions that don't involve inflammation. Uh, we still will look at structural OCTs. I wish there were other biomarkers in imaging that we had that would give us a clearer reflection on how well, for instance, some of these other pathways that we mentioned today are working that are not related to permeability. The, is the search for new biomarkers getting the attention it needs, or is that, is that an area we need to focus more on? Oh, I think it is. I, I think it is. I mean, we always need to focus more on it. I think it is getting attention. We are now talking about OCT angiograms, for instance. Sure. Um, and that has its own challenges. You know, it, it, measure, it, it, it looks at flow, and oftentimes it's a binary decision. Is there flow or is there not, not flow? Um, the algorithm that's used to distinguish whether there's flow or not is different and proprietary for each company. So we may see different images in different machines. Nothing is standardized, and we really don't know what having flow or not having flow means. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Now, these are not... These are not bad things, bad problems to have. In fact, they're not problems at all. They're challenges because it'll allow us to learn more and more. But finding a good biomarker is not easy. That's my point. We just were really, really lucky with structural OCTs and and VEGFAs. It's unlikely that we'll be that lucky again. It'll be a bit of a struggle. And finally, drug delivery. What's, what's your sense of that area? We're seeing a lot of interesting technologies come up there. Yeah, that's, that's, that's been a bit of a, uh, of, of a problem in the past. Mm-hmm. I, I thought that we had uh, drug delivery devices that, that, would be, you know, uh, that would have been developed in the last few years. They simply haven't worked out. Um, it still amazes me that patients are willing to undergo an injection, a needle in their eye once every month. I mean, it's just, it just blows me away. And I'm old enough to remember when we thought about this, you know, 15 years ago, and we said, that's nuts. Nobody's going to want an injection, <laughs> not only every month, every six months. But now they're willing to undergo it every, you know, every four weeks. Um, I, I, I wonder whether our drug delivery 
device that we will use first and foremost is going to be gene therapy, quite honestly. Really? And that might be uh, closer than any mechanical drug delivery device we have, although there's the latter study which just concluded and we're waiting to see the results of that. Uh, I think what we'll find is that maybe drug, drugs will be not so much delivered with a delivery device, the ones that we have in mind, but rather with binding from the compound itself that will bind to vitreous entities which will allow them to last longer. I think that's what we'll find. And finally, we talk so much about technology and, and funding. You're a physician, you run a practice, there's a lot of other powers out there that, that guide how you treat a patient. How are things like insurance, so are they ready for the innovation, that is, is insurance ready for the innovation that's coming? Are they going to be covering some of the, 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 the products that we may be developing, are you, or are you getting pushback on that side of the house and it's going to make your job even more difficult, bringing new technologies to patient, patients, the, the financial side of things? You know, uh, Tom, I don't think they're ready, and it's our fault, quite mm-hmm. honestly. I mean, I mean and, uh, you know, I'm old enough to remember when we had nothing. Uh, industry was not involved. OIS would be the last thing we would think about. Nobody would even associate with industry. And we weren't having any advances whatsoever, none. And then came PDT, and then people saw an opportunity, and people like me started collaborating with industry, and then everything just rolled. And we've been on this, on this amazing ride where so much has been done in our field, and we've come so far. I mean, just think about this. In my training, actually just after I finished training, the standard of care was to laser the fovea. I mean, just think about that. (laughs) That was the standard of care, and that was after a very large multicenter study. So if you were sitting there with me and you had a vision of 2080, I would say to you, you know, Tom, today I'm going to put a laser in your eye, and I'm going to make you legally blind, but you'll thank me two years later because you're central scotoma is going to be smaller than it would have been had I not done that. I mean, that was just about 15 years ago. That's how far we've come. I mean, it's amazing. But what we haven't been good at doing is taking a pause and saying, what does that mean to society? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we all know intuitively that we've helped society a great deal as a field in partnership with industry, but we've never documented that. And every time we come up with a new breakthrough, people say, well, wow, that's expensive. Wow, that's expensive. And I get that. It is expensive. But we're paying a heck of a lot of money for hypertensive agents and cancer meds and so on and so forth that don't have nearly the same value that we've provided to society. And I think one of the challenges that we have is to put together real scientific studies, maybe in partnership with industry, where we're able to, in a holistic approach, figure out the value of what we've done to society. And that will make these kind of questions a lot easier to answer. In other words, you know, what value is there to a drug that costs $100 million to develop but is improving your vision by three letters of vision? You know, we won't have to guess anymore. We will know. And that kind of approach actually is being taken uh, by the ASRS. It's a study, a large study that I'm doing uh, with USC, in, in the, uh, with the ASRS, with, uh, with USC, um, with, uh, with, with several very, very outstanding uh, public, public health of, uh, officials. And we're hoping to put together a large study that looks holistically at the value that we've provided over the last decade or so uh, by these new drugs. It's great. That's a great notion. Anyone who's had a parent who no longer can drive can exactly. certainly 
put a huge price on that. Well, thanks for taking a few minutes today to uh, share your thoughts. Tom, thank you very much. That is a wrap, folks. Dr. Praveen Dougal, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and for sitting down at OIS at ASRS. We really look forward to your conversation on November 9th in New Orleans. Again, it's called Retina Update, Interpreting and Looking Beyond the Highlights of 2017. Don't wait too long. Once this podcast is over, go to ois.net to register for the event and also to sign up for your favorite breakfast breakout session. If uh, you're unable to get into the Retina update or if you have something else in mind, remember there's many other topics and they're all listed on the agenda at ois.net. Please do not wait too long. Finally, if you could do us a few favors on the podcast, uh, give us a ranking on iTunes. Let us know how we're doing. Do shoot me an email. My email is tom at healthag.com. That's the word health followed by letters egy.com. Healthy is the producer, the proud producer of the OIS podcast and the OIS events. Finally, do tell your friends about the OIS podcast if they have as strong an interest in innovation and ophthalmology as you do. And once again, that's a wrap. Thanks, everyone. Go to OIS.net. Sign up to attend OIS at AAO. It's happening on November 9th in New Orleans. <laughs>